All right, so um, for those of you who are, um, this is your first time to kind of get an introduction to our values. I just want to give you them really quickly. There's a card on the back that will walk through each of them, but just to kind of give you the, the centrality of what we value here as a church. And then my hope is that we can build those out into the different areas of our lives. The hope is that we see practical application to the values that we have. Um, and so two of our values are foundational. This means that they, they essentially influence every other value we have. Uh, those two values are gospel centrality. That means that in everything that we do, we want the gospel to be central. It's not a back seat. It's not a tagline. It's, it's the central theme of everything we do. We want the gospel to be front and center. We want the death, burial, and resurrection to be that which we proclaim. I think about what Paul wrote, just the simple statement of him we proclaim. I mean, everything we do, we want to be proclaimers of the gospel. We want to preach Christ to people because we believe first and foremost that for the lost, preaching Christ to them is the primary means. It is the God-ordained means that they would come to saving faith. And secondly, as saints, what do we ever constantly need? We need the gospel. We need to hear of Christ. We need to be looking unto him. And so um, what we want to do in everything that we do, so all these other values that we have are heavily influenced by our desire to be centered on the gospel of Christ. We want to fix our eyes there. The other one is biblical faithfulness, which means that everything that we do is defined and influenced by what the scripture teaches. Um, I don't have to tell you, this is a rather, uh, as tragic as it is, it's largely radical in nature at this point to say that we believe that the Bible is the word of God. We believe that it is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. That is the, the foundation of everything we believe. And so when we sit down and we have conversations, we want the Bible to influence what we believe, how we live, and ultimately what our convictions are. And so those two values influence the other three. And the other three, first and foremost, is faithful labor. Um, just to kind of articulate to you the, the premise of faithful labor, uh, faithful labor is the idea that God has called us to be faithful and he will handle the fruitfulness of our faithfulness. Um, this is vitally important for us um, because if we don't grasp this, then I think we can often find ourselves incredibly defeated as we are faithfully laboring. Uh, when I walked into seminary for the first time, I, I sat in a class uh, with a, a man named uh, Dr. Gray Allison. Dr. Gray Allison was uh, the founder of Mid-America. And there was one thing that just seemed, that was, was the number one thing he wanted to drive into every single student. He wanted to drive into the minds of every student that if you preach the gospel, you haven't failed. Um, because in a world where we have plans of salvation and all of these different schemes of how to get people to profess faith, he said, you can toss all of those out the window. And if you preach the gospel to people, then you have not failed in your task. It does not matter their response. The, the task of the Christian is to be proclaimers of the gospel. And so he just, he just ever constantly aimed to drive that home. And Paul does the exact same thing when he says that I sowed Apollos water, but God gave the growth. And so the question then becomes, if we aim to be faithful in our labor, that means that we aim to sow, we aim to water, but it also means that we aim to trust God with the growth. That at the end of the day, if, there is, if, we, if we see no growth, perhaps it is that uh, God's called you to share the gospel with someone, you sow, and by his grace, you, you, you see immediate fruit from that and you rejoice. But at the same time, you, you sow the seed and you hear nothing, nothing comes back. Um, and perhaps it is that even in your proclamation, that individual goes on to, be, to continually reject the gospel and they die in their sin. Friends, obedience is still fruitful regardless of whether or not you see the fruit. 
And so when we consider faithful labor, our hope is that, that helping everyone understand that obedience is in and of itself fruitful, um, that in, is in and of itself profitable, will encourage and motivate us to live more faithfully. Um, I think this is the primary purpose behind what Paul's doing is he writes about the, the, the growth that the Lord gives. It's essentially saying to the people he's writing to, you be faithful, God will do it. Um, and so faithful labor is one of our values. That's what we're gonna be walking through this month. Um, the other one, the other, the other two are loving community. Um, we, we talk about this all the time. And you know, the thing about loving community is it's, it's what I want to identify this body more than anything else. Because loving community, if it's rooted in the gospel of Christ, it's rooted in biblical faithfulness, it is just the sweetest thing around. And so with that, we want loving, uh, a loving community to be established in the gospel and in biblical faithfulness. And then lastly, we have authentic worship. We'll deal with that more toward the end of the year. But looking at authentic worship, we want to worship God the way that he has prescribed that he be worshiped. Um, one one uh, friend said it this way, that uh, your preferences really matter in worship if you're the one being worshiped. Um, and so God has a preference in the way that he, like, he, he wants to be worshiped, and we want to be obedient to that. Um, that's rather simple, but we think it profitable. So all of that being said, I think there are really three realms in which we can be faithful in our labor. And the first, I think, is quite reasonable to look at it first in the context of the family. Um, I don't have to tell you this. Uh, can you think of an institution more attacked in our country than the family? Um, I, I genuinely cannot. I mean, I, I was born into the assaults on the family. My generation was. There was we, we, we really didn't experience the nuclear family that wasn't under assault. Um, and so being born and raised in that, it has ever constantly been under assault. But, but what's interesting about it is God had instituted it before the fall to be a means by which he would receive glory and honor through the family. And so that being said, the scriptures are just filled with instructions on how we are to live inside of the family and how we are to live inside the family to the glory of God. Um, and so what I would like to do over, over uh, the next, hopefully, 45 minutes to an hour, um, is walk us through what faithfully living and laboring inside the family looks like. And I wanna do it just like we've already articulated with biblical faithfulness and with the gospel being central. Because if we understand that the family is meant to be a representation, meant to be a proclamation even of the gospel, um, then I think it changes the weight that we, that we operate inside the family with. Um, the family is not first and foremost about us being happy. It's not first and foremost even about uh, human flourishing, though it certainly is. It is first and foremost a means of proclaiming the gospel to those around us, specifically Christian marriage. Um, God has given marriage to uh, every human being. It's part of the creation, uh, the creation covenants, in my opinion. Um, and when we see that, it's given, most certainly, but there is a uniqueness about Christian marriage that is unlike anything else under the sun. And so with that being said, I wanna dive into um, looking at what it means to be uh, to faithfully laboring inside the family. So the first thing I wanna do is consider that this is indeed a covenant. Um, when we talk about the family relationship, obviously we have to start with the relationship between a husband and a wife. Now, that being said, it is a covenant. 
We, we major on covenants. And when we look at the scripture, friends, like if you look at them, you're gonna see the word covenant. You're gonna see the concepts of covenant scattered throughout the scriptures. And it's the way that God deals with his people. And what's most unique about marriage is it's the primary way that God has given us to deal with one another. He says in, inside of a marriage relationship, it is a covenant relationship. It is unique. So what, do, what, what can we understand about the marriage relationship um, before we dive into the unique roles and laborings that we have in it? First, uh, the marriage relationship is God-ordained and good. Um, it is God-ordained and good. So just to give you the reference there, Genesis 2, 18 through 25, and most of you are familiar with this, then the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, had, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So when we consider this, the first thing that we see inside of this creation account, the very first thing that we see actually articulated as not good is the aloneness, for lack of better words, of the man. That there was needed, even the intention, if we look at the creation account in Genesis 1, you see that God gives them a commission to fill the world, multiply and subdue it. It's an impossibility. Um, and what's interesting about it is God created Adam without his help meet and, and, and knew this was an impossibility. It is necessary that the, the covenant of marriage be instituted before the fall, primarily because God ordained it as good, but also it's a means of fulfilling the commission that he gives them in creation, which is filling the world and subduing it. So we see that in particularly in Genesis 1:28, where it says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So it's a means by which he establishes dominion and authority in the world by giving his image and causing his image to spread, abro spread abroad on the earth, demonstrating authority and dominion as image bearers. And so in honoring the covenant, we need to first understand that it is God ordained and it is good, which means that it deserves special attention. And it is unique. Let me just say it this way. There is no relationship that we have that is like the marriage relationship. The relationship that you have with your children is not like the marriage relationship. The relationship that you have with your parents is not like the marriage relationship, the sibling relationship. None of it is anywhere near as unique as the relationship that a husband is meant to have with a wife. And primarily because that relationship is meant to, in my opinion, first and foremost, be a gospel proclamation. Um, I, you know, you probably have learned this about me if you've been here for any time at all. I'm not prone to, um, to personal stories. I think they can often be unhelpful and detract from the focus of the scriptures. But just as a way of perhaps articulating this, when, um, when Beth got her first job, it was a really casual environment. We were able to, I was able to go in and to interact with her and even with her coworkers. 
Um, and her coworkers were pretty closed off. Um, they had, uh, they were, you know, people our age, newly married, most of them. And, and what was so interesting about the relationship that she had with them and even the relationship that I developed with them is it, is it ended up being a gospel relationship because they were so, they were so intrigued by the relationship that Beth and I had with one another that the marriage relationship led us into the ability to share the good news of the gospel with them because the, a, a God-honoring marriage always entices people and ask, to ask what's, what's unique about yours that I don't have. Um, we already know that the, the true covenant that's made in marriage is between man, woman, and we should always include God. It is a covenant between three. And so that being said, it is a gospel proclamation. You're all familiar with Ephesians 5. Um, this is the, the, just the conclusion that he makes there in, in Ephesians 5, 32. We'll, we'll go through all of that. But it says, this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so Paul's elaborating on the marriage relationship. And then at the conclusion, he says, everything I'm talking about, yes, absolutely, it has this, this, this context of the marriage, but it really does transcend that. And it's about the relationship that Christ has with the church, which friends, if we're living out the marriage relationship as God has designed it, then it can't help but do this. It, it literally is designed in essence to proclaim the gospel. And so that's one, those are some of the ways we honor the covenant. And, then, and I think one of the most important ways that we honor the covenant that God has established is resting in the covenant. <coughs> the marriage relationship is meant to be a place of resting. Just like when we look at the new covenant, we see that there is inside of the covenant a resting. There's meant to be a security. There's meant to be a peace. There's meant to be a genuine rest that when one covenants together with another, it is meant to be a place of, of peace, no fear. That's when we look at passages like, for instance, in Genesis 2, where it makes the reference to being naked and unashamed. There is a unique, um, there's a unique relationship that's there that provides peace and comfort and stability when really there's, there's no, no other relationship like that. Um, when we covenant together, I love what Diedrich Bonhoeffer says in regard to this. This is one of my favorite quotes about marriage. It says, it is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on the marriage that sustains your love. And so the whole concept, it, it is the covenant then that sustains the love that you have for one another. That when perhaps when your love is feeble and, and, and perhaps failing, the covenant still stands. Um, and the covenant is meant to be a place on which you rest your head to some degree. And so you can see already how these things play out in, a, in the midst of, of proclaiming the gospel. But lastly, we do see labor in the covenant. Um, and so inside of this covenant relationship with your spouse, there is a laboring. Um, there is a working out of the commands that God gives for uniquely for uh, each member that's present there. And so we want to honor the covenant of marriage. And one of the ways we want to do that is by laboring rightly in it. Now, before we dive into the different roles, I want to go ahead and confess to you, I'm walking in presupposing a couple things. I'm walking in presupposing uh, complementarianism, meaning that I am walking in presupposing that God has designed man specifically for the roles that he has given to man. And God has designed women specifically for the roles that he's given to women. That also means that these things cannot be flip-flopped. Um, it doesn't work. You flip-flop these, as I've said in the past, men make terrible women and women make terrible men. Uh, it just, it doesn't work. Um, no matter how hard we try, it's very clearly a perversion. Um, you, if, if you were to watch this unfold, you consider even the role of um, protector that God has given to, that God has given to men. Uh, can you imagine even walking into a house 
and seeing a woman who certainly perhaps is combat trained, has a black belt, and his husband is hiding, by, and her husband's hiding behind her. Immediately, that, that, that's repulsive to you. And it's intended to be so because God has given the husband specifically for a task. And so when we consider this, I just want to go ahead and presuppose those things. I'm going to confess those to you. Um, And and so as we walk through this, I'm going to go ahead and say, these cannot be flip-flopped. It's not as though the woman can take the step up and say, I'm going to to do the things that God's called the man to do, or the the, uh, man can say, say, I'm going to do the things that God's called the the wife to do. It it will not function appropriately. and, And genuinely, I will say it will fall apart. Um, and I have great confidence in saying it will fall apart. Um, so that being said, let's look at laboring inside the family. First and foremost, we'll look at laboring in the family as the husband. So before we get to the work, and, and this is where we always have to start, if we don't understand the head and the heart behind the labor, um, the labor's going to be broken. Uh, it's gonna be dead on arrival. Um, there, there are a few things more disgusting than uh, a husband who longs to lead his family, but without love. Um, it, it, is, it is horrendous. It is tyrannical and it's void of gospel. Um, and so the very first thing that we need to understand is the head and the heart of the Christian husband inside the family. And so just before you consider this, the head and the heart means this, this is how he's thinking, how he, how he loves, where does this originate from? And the first thing that we have to say in this is it originates from first and foremost inside of a Christian marriage is love for Christ. Um, If we get this wrong, if we do not start with an affection for Jesus and an affection for the gospel, your marriage will not matter to you like it should. Um, Your spouse will not matter to you like she should. And so the very first thing we need to understand is his head and his heart are fixed on the person of Jesus. And if he does that, and if, and, if, and if you see your husband longing to pursue Christ, then you can rest pretty comfortably that he'll lead you pretty well. Um, and that's because he is first and foremost aiming to be an imitator of God. So Ephesians 5, 1, so I, I'm convinced that Ephesians 5 is this just trajectory that Paul sets forward and it finds, its, it finds its end in marriage. But the whole concept is if we're gonna live in the spirit, if we're gonna be obedient to Christ, the very first thing he says as he introduces this is therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. That's the call. And I'm convinced that the man who's aiming to lead his family well is doing just this. He's longing to be an imitator of God. He's wanting to love as Christ loves. That's his origin. The only way he can do this is if he is first and foremost, the chief submitter of his home. You're going to hear the word submit throughout this night, but I really hope, and and it's important for us to understand that submission is something that is glorious and is good. Um, And it starts in the family with the husband. If we understand that the husband, the man is the chief submitter in his home, Meaning that he is first and foremost, as 1 Corinthians 11 says, he understands what, it, what verse 3 says. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Men, you are the chief submitter in your home. Meaning that if anyone needs to look and see what submission looks like, they should be looking at you. They should be looking at you not because you're submitting in the sense that, that, you, are, that you are degrading yourself or anything of that nature. It should, they should look to you to see what it looks like to submit to Christ. And if you're aiming to faithfully submit to the Lord Jesus in your life, it's gonna be really easy, I'm convinced, in your marriage to see submission occur in all of its other capacities. 
Because if your family's looking to you as the leader, as the head, and you are the one who's faithfully demonstrating submission to Christ, then, then you can demonstrate by example. It's not only you saying, hey, we, we submit to each other here. It's you demonstrating submission to Christ in a way that is just incredibly Christ-honoring and God-exalting. And also, it's a recognition of your own frailty. If, if, if we had a lower view of man, we would look to God more. And we often have this very high view of self where we think we can white knuckle it and get it done. If you look and if we, as we walk through the labors that are necessary to be a faithful husband, um, I hope by the end of this, you think I can't do this. I mean, genuinely, if, they, if I have one goal here is that you say, I got no shot at this. And by doing that, you find yourself fixing your eyes on Jesus who is able to, to, to set the example before you and also give you the hope of the Spirit of God to empower you for the task. Um, and so we see that the husband is at first and foremost the chief submitter, meaning that he is ever constantly under the submission to Christ and also the Scriptures. But secondly, thirdly, we see he is the chief servant of the home. So let's just look at this text and we'll end up covering a couple of things here. But if the husband is the chief servant of the home, that means that he is the first one to lay down his life and his preferences. Um, there, is, there is a multiple stereotypes in what it looks like to lead. But as you look at the scriptures, what you don't see is tyrannical. You really don't. You never see a tyrannical leader that God honors. Instead, you see a leader who lays down his life, a leader who loves and serves. I mean, even if we look at the Lord Jesus Christ in John 13, when we see the, the, him washing the disciples' feet, what's the refrain that he says? I have not come to be served, but to serve. And so just for a moment, if you think that you are entering into a marriage relationship, and even you people who are young and are just come, perhaps walking into marriage right now, or even thinking that's something on the horizon, hear me when I say this, you don't walk into a marriage to be served, and it doesn't matter which way you're coming in. If you're coming in as the wife or the husband, you don't come into the marriage to be served. If you come in, I'm just telling you, it's going to be a rough, it's going to be a rough go, at bare minimum for the first year. But if you come in understanding that my intention here is to be a servant, is to care for the other individual in this marriage relationship and chiefly that of the husband, to care specifically for his family. So let's look at what Paul would articulate for us in regard to this. So Paul breaks this down in Ephesians 5, 25 through 30. If you have your Bibles and you just wanna hold a place, this is where you're probably gonna wanna be. So Ephesians 5, 25 through 30 says this, "'Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church "'and gave himself up for her.'" that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So just to kind of walk us through that, the first thing that Paul pushes us to is look to Jesus. When we say we wanna be gospel-centered, I'll just tell you, it's really not a difficult thing to do because it's almost as though God has set the gospel in the center of every doctrine, of every life, of everything that we do in life. When you look at marriage, when you look at the family, when you look at the church, it really doesn't matter where you're looking. It really is clear that there is a central theme of the gospel. And so the very first thing he tells us to do in this is he's walking through what it means to be a husband and a wife and how to live that out is he tells us to look to Jesus. 
And in his telling us to look to Jesus, he walks through what Jesus has already accomplished. The very first thing we see is that he lays down his life for his bride. Now, this is important for us, and I think that it's something that we make reference to over and over again, but it matters. Um, When we look at this, you see Jesus lay down his life for his bride. There is a unique affection that he has. That's not offensive if you understand it in the context of marriage. Jesus has a bride. He goes and gets her. He is the initiator of this. He is the one who brings her in. And it's important for us to understand this because oftentimes we think that when we, when we consider the, the love and affection that Jesus has for his church, friends, never apologize for the unique affection that Jesus has for his church. We rejoice in that. As a matter of fact, we model our own marriages after it. No one's offended when you say that you love your wife uniquely and you love her in a way that you do not love any other woman. Everybody understands that's a good and profitable thing. If you break that, you've busted the marriage. But when we look at it from the lens of the gospel and we say that Jesus lays down his life for his bride, it doesn't cause rejoicing often. Instead, we scratch our heads at that. Friends, that's a no-brainer. Jesus loves his bride uniquely and he lays down his life for her. And so husbands, we do well to pay attention to what Christ has done for his bride and model that. It means that we lay down our life for our brides. It means that we are sacrificial in the way that we love them. Now, the reason this is so important, once again, is because the the other option is to be tyrannical. And since you've walked into the marriage longing to be served, as opposed to being sacrificial in your own service, you've walked in a tyrant. You've walked in already undermining the loveliness of the gospel. Because that's, that's the complete opposite of what we see the Lord Jesus do for his. It, we, we, we've ruined the image. And so when you see this, one of the ways that we see service un- unfold inside of the marriage relationship is that the husband is to lay down his life for his bride. This means that he is the first. He is the initiator. He is the one who is always the first to lay down his life. Now, we see this really practically. If someone walks in the door to your home to harm your family, who's the first to go down every time? The husband is. We know this, that the husband's the one who wages war, who's trying to protect his family. I'm just simply saying, and I think what the scripture is articulating here is there's not an area where that's not the case inside of your marriage, that you are the one who initiates, that you are the one who, like Christ, goes to protect and care for his bride and his family. So we lay down our life. That means we're often laying down our own preferences and things of that nature. We lead like servants. So we lay down our life. We also become agents of sanctification. Excellent book, excellent resource. Um, Sacred marriage really does lay this out. And the concept is that your marriage is not about your happiness, but your holiness. Um, And we see this really clearly in Ephesians 5. As the Lord Lord Jesus demonstrates this for us and Paul elaborates on it, he says, husband, love your wives. And then he clearly articulates what that looks like as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, first, before we dive into this, this is not us contributing to the positional sanctification that Christ has provided for his church. This is us aiming to see holiness be brought to fruition in the life of our family and in particularly our spouse, that husbands are meant to be agents of sanctification in your home. Because in reality, you are either an agent of sanctification or you're an agent of licentiousness. You will be one or the other. You are either going to be a contributing factor to your family's holiness, or you will be a contributing factor to your family's sinfulness. Um, The way that you go, how faithfully you live, your desire to sit down with your family and care for their souls, it really does make a massive difference. And friends, I'll say this, as a pastor of a church, 
as one of the elders here, we love you. We wanna care for you and to feed you. But if it's not happening in your family, we can't supplement that. We really can't. We aim to, we want to love you. We want to see you grow in Christ. But my, our hope is, and even as we launched this church, when we sat down with the men for the first time, we said, our aim, our hope is to feed the men of Mercy Hill Church to such a degree that when they go home, they will be the primary agents of holiness inside their family, that they will be the primary agents of gospel proclamation because I am convinced that if we can get the men to faithfully follow what Christ uh, demonstrated with his life in their own families, then my goodness, what a radical distinction it would make if men would be men. And so that being said, we hope and pray and we convince the labor that's necessary in service to our family is that men are to be agents of sanctification. We are to be means by which Christ washes his brides in the water of the word. Um, And you see that quite clearly. And and the beauty of this is, friends, you don't have to bring anything of of yourself to the table. The beauty of being an agent of sanctification in your family is you don't have to be clever. Sit down with your family and read the Bible together pray together, uh, enjoy the ordinary means of grace together. Um, and I, I'm certain of this, you will find it to be the most joyous moment of every day. Um, there are few things that I treasure more than even if it is 10 minutes of time together with Beth, sitting down, reading the scriptures and praying together. It is the most valuable part of my day. And it's the most valuable part of not only our day, but really the trajectory of our family as a whole. Um, So anyway, be agents of sanctification, men. Thirdly, uh, by understanding unity and stewardship. So when you look at the language here, you see a couple of things. The very first thing you see is stewardship in the sense that uh, uh, husbands and fathers, we do well to note that every member of our family is ours by stewardship, that God has entrusted them to us for, for their care. Um, in the same way that when we consider the, the, the way that the church functions, we have members of this congregation that the elders are meant to love and to care for, that God has entrusted you to us and we want to care for you to the best of our ability. In the exact same way, husbands, your wives and your children have been entrusted to you for your care, um, that your aim should be to present them to Christ as offerings in the sense of saying, Lord, you've entrusted these people to me. We've, done, we, we've preached the gospel to our children. We've washed, uh, we've washed them in the water of the word to the, to, the, to, the, to the best that we possibly could. We've faithfully labored in the home. We've proclaimed the gospel. We've done all of these things and we trust you with the growth. Um, and so we think those are vitally important. And then also understanding unity. The language that you see in verse 28 of chapter five says, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. You know, when we look at Genesis 2, there's the language of one flesh. But we've just like, we, we, we've relegated that to some second tier. Um, one flesh really does denote a unity that is mysterious. Um, but when we consider even the relationship to Christ, to the church, which is being used as the illustration here, he is our head and we are the body. I mean, the list goes on and on. But when we consider unity of husband and wife, it really should be, and I would argue is, an unbreakable bowl, uh, unbreakable bond. Um, and so I just think it's important for us to perhaps consider those things, that we are indeed united one flesh. And uh, so anyway, uh, service. So moving, moving on. Um, we also, we, so we see that the husband is the, his head and his heart. We see he's the chief submitter of his home, chief servant. But we also see that he is the leader of the home. 
Um, this is the same correlation between head, body, um, and, and even as we walk through passages. So like Ephesians 5, says, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. This naturally denotes then leadership inside the family. And since the fall, men have done everything they can to shirk their responsibility in leadership. Um, when you look at the, the curse language, um, everything that's in the curse was already established before. It's just simply made more difficult by the curse. You see that there is a, there's roles in, the, in marriage, husband and wife. We see there's work to be done. And inside of those things, we see that the curse brings about difficulty in those tasks. So the husband is to work and to lead. And we also see that there is a unique thing that occurs where um, the, the, the wife's desire will be for her husband's position. And the issue is we, we're quick to give it. Like men are naturally quick to shirk their responsibilities. Um, it's crazy the level of laziness inside of men. Um, I, I think we see that rather clearly at the fall. We even see it honestly in Adam um, as the fall is occurring, being passive in nature. And when we consider this being the chief leader of your home means that you are the one who sets the trajectory, that you are the ones who, who also takes responsibility. And when I do premarital counseling, one of the first things that I articulate to people who are going into marriage is I look at the man and tell them that you're responsible for literally everything that happens in your home, everything. If your wife is in sin, then brother, you better go to work. Go to work, care for her soul, do everything you can. You are the first line of defense that God has given to her as a means of preserving her and caring for her. And so that being said, we see that men are the chief leaders of the home. They set the direction, they are responsible. And they are responsible chiefly. They are the top of the list. Um, we see Adam's first response. It's, it's so laughable, the conversation that God has with Adam after the fall. Adam is... Uh, God's calling out for Adam and his first response is what? The woman you gave to me. We always miss the fact that, God, that, that Adam's first thing is not actually blaming the woman. It's blaming God. How dare you give me this woman who's led me down this path? And then it just kind of, we just, we just shift it as much as we possibly can. And I'll tell you, one of the most upsetting things about the, the world today is the lack of ownership of responsibility. Um, responsibility is a gift from God. Um, when we look at the, the parable of the tenants, of the talents, forgive me, God's giving a responsibility and even re rewards responsibility with what? More responsibility. It's God's gift to his people that he gives them responsibility. And I think that we do well to note that as leaders of the home, we should love and cherish the responsibility that God's given us um, over our families to care for them and, and also hope that he would give us more responsibility to care for more. Um, so that being said, we are to be the leaders of our homes. And this is the most important one. Men, you are to be the chief lovers of your home. This is the one that I think is missed often. Can we have the gospel without love? What's the origin of it? I mean, what's the origin of the gospel? If we consider this, we have to say it's love. The origin of the gospel is love. And if we miss this altogether, friends, you look at John three sixteen. how does that start? 
For God so loved the world. We often place the cart before the horse in this, and I think this is a major error for us. When we look at John 3, 16, we can actually see the origin of the gospel was the Father's love for the world. And so that being said, we do well to note that if love is not the origin, it's going to be fabricated. It's not going to be, in essence, what it's meant to be. It's going to be something lesser. And so if we run back through this and we say that, that, that the husband's the chief submitter of the home, he's the chief servant of the home, he's the leader of the home, but he is not the chief lover of the home, it is going to be absolutely disgusting. And I don't have a better word for it because it is, it is the letter of the law without the spirit of it. We've missed the primary purpose that the husband is to be the primary lover of his home. That if, that if your children need to know where to find love, it should be most clearly seen in the husband's care for them. If the wife needs to find love and what that looks like, how it's to be perceived, it should not be hard to find. It should be seen in the husband and it should be seen in the husband. Why? Because his head and his heart is rooted in being obedient to Christ because he loves him. And if he loves him, then it will naturally display itself in the relationships within the family. It can't help it. Um, you know, last night I was, Beth and I were reading and I was thinking through um, just kind of obedience and how it comes and, and adoration and how it comes. And I, and I just said that, um, that, uh, that obedience without adoration is the religion of the Pharisees. Um, adoration without obedience is the, the religion of the liar. But obedience born of adoration is the religion of the Christian. Um, if we understand that, then what we grasp is that adoration of Christ then births obedience and even then adoration for those things that Christ adores. If we understand that God has ordained marriage, he's ordained the relationship between a husband and a wife, and that he has even then ordained the covenant to be a proclamation of the gospel, then we love it more when we love him more. And so we set our affection on him and in setting our affection on him, it is the most natural thing then to set our affection on those who are involved in the family relationship. So that all being said, um, that's all concepts. Let's think about some practical nature of those labors. So we know that the husband is responsible for provision. Um, very clearly articulated. We see that really in the, even pre-fall. And then we certainly see it after the fall that God gives man for the purpose of working the ground, which would then naturally be the provision that they would have to eat. So a couple of things, physical and spiritual provision. Um, first and foremost, we see this, I mean, all throughout. Paul articulates this on the regular. He even goes to the extent to say that uh, a man who doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. I'll be honest with you, like there's no harsher way to say that. Um, and, and is stag I'll never forget reading that for the first time as like a 15 year old and thinking I better get a good job um, because I don't wanna be worse than an unbeliever, right? I wanna provide and care for my family. And so with that, there is a natural demand for men to work. Now, before I, before I clarify this any further, let me say this. That statement is not the concept of a man who is looking for labor and can't find a job. It's the lazy man who refuses to work or, or, or decides to freeload or something of that nature. It's not the man who is aiming to faithfully labor and simply can't find a job. It's not the same thing. Um, but also, not only physically do we see uh, provision necessary, but we also see spiritual provision. So what does that look like? Um, so first we see it in work, and secondly, we see it in discipleship. Um, husbands, fathers, you're the spiritual provider of your home. Um, and how do you provide for them? By giving them the true bread of heaven, by offering the, your family Christ regularly. 
And if I could just give you a real practical way, um, the Puritans made this an issue of church discipline. Um, I'm not coming to your house to check on this, but I would encourage you, find a time to sit down with your family to read the scriptures together. And I know that some of you are thinking, I have children who are three and four and six and whatever. And you're thinking, there's no way. Um, And let me just go ahead and give you the greatest advice I've ever been given. You just go ahead and suspend the idea that it's gonna be orderly. Just toss it out the window. It's gonna be ugly perhaps, but, but the, the intention behind it is to show, that, show your family, show your children the necessity of sitting down and breathing in the breath of God together. And if, and if you do this, you will find it to be so profitable. You'll have conversations with your spouses that you would never have otherwise. Um, there are things that God does when we sit down and read the scriptures together that binds us together in a unique way, not just husband and wife, but even then we bring in the children for this and, and, and God does a work. Um, it's almost like he's promised that the word of God will always accomplish a purpose and it will never return void. Um, and so for me, um, it's not perfect inside of my home. I'm just go ahead and confess that to you. Um, but we aim to be faithful in it. And so I would, just, I would just request, I would beseech you, spend time together in the scriptures. If it's five minutes, praise be to God. If it's 10 minutes, awesome. If you think you're awesome and you're gonna do it for an hour, you just let me know how that goes. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and I will laugh with you at the end of it. So we want to see practical labor from the man, physical and spiritual provision that moves us forward to physical and spiritual protection. Um, it is really without question that inside of the role of man is to be a physical protection for his family. Um, he is the first line of defense for his family. Um, I'm not gonna get into how you wanna defend your family. I'm not playing that game. Um, you do you, but know it's your responsibility. Um, I'm taking all the tools I can get. That's just what I'm saying. Um, And so my aim is to be someone who can actually physically protect his family. I'm not an excellent fighter, so I use tools. Um, So that being said, you're called to this. And and, and I know that that this is like a no-brainer. And I I hope that it stays a no-brainer because I don't really know if it will. Um, I've seen such degradation of man, of, of just men in general, that it's just, it's just one blow after another. Uh, men, be the primary protector of your family. Your family should know they're safe in their home, and an alarm is not what makes them feel safe. Um, a husband, who, a father who loves them and cares for them and was willing to defend them does. That's my two cents. Um, and lastly, uh, in spiritual protection, discipleship again. Um, there are two ways that we talk about church discipline here. We talk about church discipline that is preventative, meaning that it is caring for a soul beforehand that you might protect them from some blow that's to come. Um, The greatest way for you to protect your family spiritually is to bring them the gospel regularly, first and foremost, and spend time with them, once again, in the ordinary means of grace. Read the scripture together, pray together. Um, I mean, and not only pray together, but pray over them. Um, Those of you who have little ones, we got babies for days, praise God for that. Don't put your child in the crib at night before you pray for them. Pray over them. Pray that the Lord would save them. Um, that's, that's the hope that we have. Um, and so we want to be people who spiritually defend our families and protect not only our wives, but our children by washing them in the water of the word. We offer them the scripture. We offer them the gospel over and over and over again. Um, and, and our hope is that God will make it grow. And we trust that he is able to do that. Um, and lastly, delight in and adore your family. 
Um, we've talk, we talk about adoration all the time. I, I'm convinced, and so was Jonathan Edwards, which means I'm probably right, um, that, that religion is a matter of the affections, that the Christian life is built on the affections. There needs to be a deep love and adoration and affection for your family. There should never be a moment where your children have to wonder if you delight in them. Um, there should never be a moment, men, where your wives think, does my husband delight in me? Um, that should be so clearly communicated by love and action uh, and, and, and word. Because when we look at the scripture, and I just want to bring this back to the gospel, friends, oftentimes we feel, and I have seen this over and over again, when people feel as though, and I'm not saying it's true, I'm basing this in feelings, when people feel as though they do not have the affection of Christ, those who are even regenerate, you know the natural response? The natural response is normally to sin. But when we feel and understand the affection of Christ over us, it is a preventative work of God to keep us from sin because we know that by the blood of Christ, he delights in us. No other source can do that, but only the finished work of Jesus can make him delight in us. And we do well as husbands, as men, to, to make certain that our families know that just like Christ delights in those whom, whom are his, we delight in those who are ours. And so delight in and adore your family. It, should, it is inexcusable, pardon my harshness, it is inexcusable for your children and your family to, to, to not know with certainty that you delight in them. Um, so that's some practical labor. Now, that all being said, um, men, I hope I presented to you a really lofty task. Um, I really do. Like, I, I hope that at the end of this, you're walking out and saying, Jesus, help me. Um, help me do this in my family because I, I want them to know that I delight in them. I want them to look to Jesus. I want them to have their eyes fixed on you. So uh, how to help men fulfill their roles. First, ladies, I beg you, uh, pray for your husbands. Pray for your husbands regularly because the task is indeed lofty. And just to be real honest with you, we, we know that you need them, but the church needs them. The church needs men of God who are faithful and faithfully love their families because we have young families here who I wanna be able to with great confidence say, go sit in that man's house for a, for a night. Watch how he cares for his family. Um, and that's a unique way that we aim to bring about discipleship. Secondly, you're gonna laugh at me, thank him. Um, I'm not, this is not me saying, hey, go talk to your husband every morning and tell him thank you. It's really not. Um, but I think there is some significance in valuing um, faithfulness. Um, and so we do well to say thank you to the men who are faithfully fulfilling these roles. And thirdly, do not excuse him. This is like one of my number one frustrations. Do not excuse him um, because he's not excused. It's not, it, you can't excuse him for this task because God has ordained it and commanded it. Um, and so there can be no excusing of men's roles, certainly not even then by the wife assuming them. It doesn't function. It will not work. And lastly, be a joy to lead. Um, I know you all. I know every single one in this room is a joy to lead all the time. Um, and so I would just encourage you, be, that took a long time for some giggles to happen. Um, I was like, ooh, that was bad. Uh, so... But, but, but genuinely, be a joy to lead. Um, I mean, you know, we think about how to care for our families. We want it to be a joy. We want to have love and, and fellowship in our families uniquely. So be, be a joy to lead. Aim to make that a goal. So that was a lot. So that's men. Let's move on then to, um, to uh, the roles of wives and mothers in the home. So uh, let me just go ahead and say this before I dive into this, and just like I did the other. There are few roles... 
that are under assault more than the biblical role of women. And let me tell you how intrinsic it is. I, as I was writing this, had to fight. I mean, genuinely fight against what the culture has told me my entire life. Um, And and I I will confess to you, I genuinely think I know my Bible. I don't know it as well as I hope to in in the days to come. But when I think about writing the, the how wives can labor in the home and being faithful to the scripture, I'm literally waiting for someone to take a shot at me. Um, there are few things that are more um, volatile in our day. So we're just gonna do exactly what we say in our values. We're gonna trust the scriptures. Um, and so that being said, let's look at um, labor in the home for wives. First, her head and heart. I have a cop out. I praise God every day for Proverbs 31 because it makes this super easy. Um, Proverbs 31, 30, charm is, dece- is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. The hope then is that the heart and the head of a woman is to fear the Lord, is to trust him, depend on him and have a genuine fear and admiration of him. Obviously we know according to the beginning of Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That naturally then presupposes that the woman who is fearing the Lord is aiming to walk wisely before him. And that starts with what? Looking unto Jesus. It is so interesting that both of our eyes, the husband's role is distinct. It's different. The wife's role is distinct. It is different. But both of us, if we are starting at the appropriate place, have eyes fixed on Christ. It starts there. It originates there. And good news, it never departs from there. You don't have to look somewhere else. We start and end there. And so we start looking unto Christ. And then the second thing is adorning the gospel. The hope of the wife in the family is to adorn the gospel. Um, and and let's, just, let's talk about adorning for a minute because uh, when we consider the word adorn, it means to make lovely. Um, that's not the concept of, oh, I have a role that God's given me and I have to do it. It's saying that for you to make the gospel lovely, that means when the world looks at you, they're seeing the beauty of the gospel. That, friends, I'll just tell you, we don't have that language. Men don't have that language attributed to it. Instead, when we look at this passage in particular in 1 Peter chapter 3, it says, Do not let your adorning be external than the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, is, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husband as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And so you see there is this grand opportunity that God has given to women to, 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 um, words are hard, forgive me, adorn themselves with the gospel in a way that, that brings beauty to it. And not only brings beauty to it, but it is their beauty that the beauty that a God-honoring woman has is rooted in her submission to Christ first and foremost and being obedient unto him. So that leads us into this language of submission. Um, I'm just gonna tell you one of the things that I learned as I was looking through this is there really is not a time in scripture where God is speaking, bare minimum in the New Testament, where God is speaking specifically to wives that the word submit is not used. It's never not used. So let's just give you a couple. Ephesians 5, through 24. 
Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Going on in 1 Peter chapter 3, we just read this. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Colossians 3.18, wives, submit to your husbands as, to, as is fitting in the Lord. Guys, he's been real clear. Um, and it really is not so much a surprise um, that, that it's so clear in the scriptures, but it is a surprise that there is nothing that is more under assault than the word submit. It has been denigrated to a, to a shadow of its former self. It is meant to be glorious. Um, and so that being said, I just want to cover what I'm convinced that submission is and is not. Um, so first and foremost, I, I, I call this God-honoring submission. First, it isn't passive. Um, when we consider submission, it's almost the concept of passivity. That is not God-honoring submission. God-honoring submission is an act of submission. Um, it is the action of an individual to say, God has placed me in a specific role and my delight is to honor him in, in being obedient unto him. And so the very first starting place, by the way, of submission to a husband is first and foremost submission to Christ because the question has to be asked, if I'm not going to submit to Christ, then it's irrelevant if I'm going to submit to my husband or not. We submit to Christ, and thus, ladies, we sub you're to submit to your husbands. It's quite clear. It's not passive. It's active. It is an act of obedience, uh, not only un first and foremost unto Christ, but secondly, it isn't done begrudgingly. If I had a dollar for every time I heard um, a lady say to me, just submitting. I was having a, a conversations early on and they would say, you know, just trying to be submissive. And every time I hear that language, I think, no, you're not. Like I'm not, I'm not it's, it's not trying to be mean or coarse, but when I hear that, it is, it is in essence stating the begrudging nature of submission. Um, if you have been blessed to have a God-fearing husband who submits to Christ, how can it be done begrudgingly? How can it be done begrudgingly? Um, if his aim is first and foremost to be the chief submitter of your home, to fix his eyes on Jesus, to submit to the authority of Christ, then it should be our great delight. It should be your great delight to submit to your husband. It's not done begrudgingly. The same way that when a husband longs to be a servant in his home, he doesn't go wash the dishes and break them because he's angry he's doing the dishes, right? It ruins the obedience of it. It removes it altogether. And so it cannot be done begrudgingly. Instead, it must be done with indeed great delight. Thirdly, it isn't cultural. Submission isn't cultural. It might look different in different cultures, but it is not cultural in nature. This is not as though Paul penned this in a, in a particular culture and it's meant to be tossed out today. As a matter of fact, multiple times we see Paul say things like, just as in all the churches, there were multiple cultures represented in that statement. He's making a statement saying that this is the natural order I'm convinced that is rooted in creation. Um, and so it isn't cultural. And then fourthly, it isn't degrading. Um, and I'll just say this as a side note, husbands, if you're leading in a way and asking your wife to be submissive in a way that is, that is degrading, you are not leading in a gospel way. You are exercising that tyrannical oversight that is void of gospel. But if you are leading in a gospel-centered way, then there should be no feeling of degradation in the one who is delighting to submit to you. Instead, it should be a means of encouraging them and seeing them even flourish in the role that God has given. Lastly, and I think most importantly, 
it is Christ exalting. Remember the image? In Ephesians 5, the language that's presented is what? It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The beauty of this is you play a great role in this glorious shadow. Husbands, you are called to be in the marriage relationship a representative of Christ. Um, I tell every, every time I've performed a wedding, I look at that man who is, who is taking on these vows and I said, you are walking in to the greatest and most difficult task you will be given. And it's not because being married is difficult. It's because your call is to be a representative of Christ in this picture. In the same way, wives, you are to be a representative of the church who Christ loved and laid down his life for. And so when we consider the language of submission, we do well to place it back in the language that Paul uses when he articulates what biblical marriage is. So laboring in the home for the woman is often demonstrated, is normally demonstrated in God-honoring submission. We also go a bit further and we say, so what then is some of the natural outworkings of this? Well, one of them is that the wife is the chief nurturer of the home. You ever seen a man nurture? It's normally not that great. Um, The best nurturer that is a man will not in any way compete with the worst nurturer who is a woman. God has given women to be nurturers, to be carers. It's the reason that Men, your children push you away when they're sick and they want their mother. God has given women a unique task in doing this. And so we see that one of the ways that, she, the ways that women honor Christ and, and labor in the home is by exercising being the chief nurturer of their home. And, and man, what an honor. Um, what an honor to be the nurturer of the home, to care for your children, to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, to be the one they call to. Um, it, is a, it is a unique honor. And so we even look, going, going back to Proverbs 31, uh, verse 27, it says this, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Just as a side note here, if you're to run through Proverbs 31, what you're going to notice is this woman that's being exemplified here as the, as, the, as the woman who fears the Lord, she is nurturing every aspect of her home. She's nurturing her husband. She's nurturing her children. She's making sure they're well-fed and taken care of, even to the extent where the way that she lives her life is placing a unique uh, perspective of the husband in the city. It does that much. And so you see a unique nurturing then. But going a bit further, we also see that she is the helper of her husband. In Genesis chapter two, verse 20 and 23, we're all familiar with this again. The men, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man and made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of woman. What was the purpose? There was not a helper fit for him. And what we see God do by giving Adam a woman is finding and making for him a helper perfectly fit for him. 
And so when we consider the roles that God gives to women inside of the household, it is to be a nurturer and it is also to be the primary helper of her husband. Once again, going back to the concept, if, if you, are, if you are, have the, the joy of submitting yourself to a man who loves Christ and is faithful to submit himself to him, then what a joy it is to come alongside him and be his helper as he aims to please the Lord. Um, lastly, uh, the wife is the means of human flourishing. The means of human flourishing. We see Genesis 1, 27 and 28, this commission that's given. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And so just in considering that, we'll lead just to a couple of practical, practical labors. And what's interesting about these practical labors is they're not, as, they're not as solidified as the roles that God has given to men inside of the relationship. Instead, they seem to be a bit more abstract, but the simple ways that we see this is from Ephesians 5.33, just the simple call to respect your husband, respect your husband, to love him, to help your children, to help your husband and to love your children. And that's, and that's the call. That looks different, I'm convinced, in every single home. Um, perhaps it is, and I, we know this, right? Um, that God has uniquely gifted Beth to be, my, to be my helpmate in the way that no other woman can be. In the same way God has given to you a husband that you are uniquely fit to be a helper for. But let's just conclude this with this and then we'll, we'll close out. So what's the products of a fa- of faithful labor at home? What's the end game here? I mean, we've talked about this. We're considering what it looks like to be a faithful husband, faithful wife in the home. How does this actually play out? What's the end game? Well, the end game is simple. First, it creates gospel-exalting marriages. To this day, there are few things that adorn the gospel like a marriage that bows itself to the authority of Scripture and the glory of Christ. There are just few things. And when we see men lead faithfully and wives submit in a unique way as unto the Lord, then my goodness, it adorns the gospel in ways that makes lost people ask what in the world is going on. It is so unique, especially as our culture degrades in what they believe about marriage. Uh, You see that Christian marriage stands fast, um, that it's faithful, that it's safe, and that it honors Christ and lifts him high. And the last thing, most notably, children. I know that's so simple, but we live in a culture that does not value children at all. Uh, This week, we were given a horrendous, yet quite clear example of that, where a woman stood up at the Golden Globes and says that it would not be possible for me to have won this Golden Globe had I not murdered my child. Um, Friends, that's the culture that we live in. And, and I know that like when you walk into this church and even on Sunday morning, you're gonna hear children in the background. You're gonna hear them make noises. You're gonna hear them scream. I literally, as we started, heard Rowan shout out in the back. Um, like we rejoice in that because we believe that to be product of faithful gospel marriages and that they are meant to be something that we delight and rejoice in. And so when we consider not only the faithful, the, the, the faithful labor at home, it produces certainly gospel-exalting marriages, but it also presents an opportunity to fulfill the Great Commission. Friends, the, the beauty that God has given to you as parents with children is that he has given you the opportunity to make lifelong disciples, to care for them from the time they are born, preach the gospel over them, pray for them, by God's grace, see them come to saving faith and see them grow into faithful followers of Christ. And look, and I, I've told you this, if you've, if you've joined, if you've come to the membership class, we commit that we pray for your children. 
We pray for your children because we believe that by God's grace, the ministry of this church, that he might save them. And if he does so, then we will disciple them all the more and we'll be able to have the same conversation with them as they engage in in marriage and then continuing on this trajectory.